1: I'm your host, Susie Rosenstein, and I am so glad to be here with you again for this week's episode, which is another interview in my series called Weekly Wow with Women in the Middle. Weekly Wow introduces you to amazing women who have something super relevant to share with Women in the Middle. Today's Weekly Wow interview is with Master Certified Life Coach Rachel Hart, who is the author of the new book, Why Can't I Drink Like Everyone Else, a step-by-step guide to understanding why you drink, and how to take a break. Rachel knows firsthand that in order to change your drinking, you have to change your thinking. Rachel and I also know each other from the Life Coach School, and I knew that she would be a perfect guest for this podcast. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome her to the Women in the Middle podcast. Let's get going. Enjoy the interview. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us here in podcast land. Thank you so much for having me. One of the reasons I was so interested in interviewing you is because I know how much of an issue drinking can be for women in the middle. We talk about how much this whole midlife thing is really about transition and change, and not all transitions are smooth for everyone. What have you noticed about drinking in midlife?
0: You know, this is such a fascinating issue because I think most people have the misconception that there is a kind of a, a binary or a black and white understanding of whether or not you struggle with alcohol or whether you struggle with drinking more than you want. And so we've kind of incorrectly divided the world into, oh, well, you're a normal drinker and you have no problem whatsoever, or you're an alcoholic and you can't handle any alcohol. You're totally powerless. And so what happens is it leaves out a lot of people who are in the middle, right? Not only midlife, but people who are in somewhere in between. And one thing that I've discovered is how many women who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and who have never had a problem with drinking. It was not something that plagued them in their teens or their 20s. All of a sudden, here they are drinking more than they want and they don't understand because there is such a black and white narrative. And so it's really important to understand that your relationship with alcohol can change over time and it can change in different circumstances. And most people don't know that. They don't have that information. So when all of a sudden they're 50 years old and they think, why am I drinking three glasses of wine every night? Where did this come from and why is it challenging to change? It doesn't make sense in the kind of overall cultural narrative that we have.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up and how perfect that it's a middle thing. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And when you don't understand that that could even be part of the story, you don't even, I can see that right away we would just say, well, I'm not an alcoholic, so there's not a problem here.
0: Yeah. So it's either, you know, well, I don't identify as being powerless. I'm not always drinking, right, in a, in a manner or a way in which I'm feeling negative consequences, but I sometimes am. And so I find that a lot of women get in this situation where they have no idea where to look for support or help, because there is also a lot of shame attached to this issue. And there's a lot of stigma attached to this issue. And we, as a society, don't have, we don't have space for people who don't fit in this binary.
1: And so it can be very isolating for a lot of women. Oh, I can totally see that. And the other thing is that when you're thinking about uh, how alcohol is, how how problems associated with drinking are showing up in your life, it may not be what comes to mind, which might be a sitcom um, situation for you that you're reflecting on or, or something from a cartoon where if you're functional, you're good. Right. Yeah. Or if, if, um, if the problems aren't like that, you're completely passed out. It could be a work problem. It could be a financial problem. It could be um, that you got hurt as a result of uh, tripping or something. They're all a uh, relationship problems, financial problems, all of those things. So I can see that when you don't have that context, it's very hard to figure things out. Yeah, that's
0: right. And I think it's okay that, you know, for some women, the problem simply is like, I don't like the extra weight that I'm gaining, but every time I try to cut alcohol out, I feel like I don't have a way to deal with the stress and anxiety at the end of the day. Or a lot of women will have experienced trouble sleeping. Right, And so they'll find that when they're drinking, that makes it even more likely that they're going to wake up at 2 or 3 in the morning, Right, when you just suddenly awake in bed, like, what happened here? So you can have these kind of low, low-grade physical side effects that you don't like, even just waking up and feeling kind of foggy in the morning, or it's hard to get started. So it's not a catastrophe. But it is also a consequence and a result that you don't like. And then figuring out how to change that without also feeling like, well, now I don't have any way to take the edge off. Now, whenever I'm in a social situation, I feel like I'm missing out or I feel like I'm the odd woman out. A lot of people feel very stuck because they want to have better results. They want to feel better in their life, but they also don't want to be in this place where they think, okay, well, now I feel kind of stressed and no idea how to handle that at the end of the day.
1: Oh, yeah. Stress is certainly something that comes up so much and feeling stuck in uh, when women in the middle share. And my clients talk about um, a few main areas. And I'm wondering how you've seen alcohol play out with this. Emptiness, the whole transition, with parenting, adult, young adult—I'm putting adults in quotes—if you could see me on pod, you know, <laughs> the podcast, um, adult children, that whole transition, and career malaise is a big one. A lot of women in the middle have been in long-term jobs that are just no longer fulfilling, and what to do about it creates a whole thing. And then there's aging and milestones like turning fifty. And uh, the other thing you said is this weight gain. Now, a lot of times weight gain is associated with menopause and there are, uh, and of course, the sleep thing, sleep, <laughs> sleeping and sweating yeah. and sleeping and waking and not being able to get to sleep. You know, we make jokes on Facebook. A lot of times you'll see women popping up at two, three in the morning going, oh, I can't sleep. And then two other people will pop in. Yeah, me neither. It's like a party. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I, I love that you brought that up.
0: It's, it's so important. I see this happen all the time. So pain is a really common one, right? So I work with a lot of women who are used to being very active. And then all of a sudden, as they're getting older, they start to find that they have more, they have more, uh, you know, aches and pains. So they might be having lower back problem and that might keep them from running. And then what do they do? right? They're it, they're experiencing basically physical pain. They don't want to feel that way. They want to be out. They want to be active. They're feeling hamstrung in their ability to do that. And then it's like, well, at least I can feel better at the end of the day. At least I can pour myself a glass of wine. So I see pain. Menopause comes up a ton, right? There's a lot of shifts happening in your body. It is really... Um, it's really, you know, your hormones are changing quite a bit. And again, people will turn to like, well, I felt kind of crappy and irritable all day. So here's my reward. I think you're totally right about the empty nest. Also, there's a lot of life transitions. I see women who have been in marriages for a very long time. All of a sudden they get a divorce. Well, now what? Now I have to go back on the dating scene. Are you kidding me? Or (laughs) women... Women who, um, I work with several women who retired from jobs and that was really, their work was something that really fulfilled them. And so all of a sudden they're in retirement looking around thinking, well, what do I do now? Sickness is also another thing. So sickness um, for family members, right? So watching your partner um, have cancer, right? Dealing with those kind of unexpected ills that can come up, that can be a big thing as well.
1: Yeah, I can totally see that. And then the whole sandwich business of, of still having responsibilities with children, but then yeah. also starting to take on the responsibilities of caring for your parents. Yep, yeah, there's a lot going on in midlife, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> Now, the one thing that I I did want you to share, I love how candid you've been about your own personal story and what you've learned about managing urges and deciding how you want to cope on purpose, which is so relevant to what, what do you do once you have awareness that you want to make a change. And I know with your podcast and with your book, it's helped so many women learn how to take a break or if they want to decide to um, drink less or not at all, whatever they decide. Can you share a bit about your own story and how it played out for you?
0: Yeah. So, you know, unlike a lot of the women that I work with, when I started drinking, I started drinking when I was 17. So it was my first, my first couple months in college. And I, my brain immediately was like, oh, this is how you feel confident. This is how you don't feel awkward in social situations. So I didn't necessarily have that kind of conscious awareness, but at an unconscious level, I really was using alcohol as a way to feel differently. And that is a very common thread for many people. It might not be insecurity and awkwardness. It might be stress and anxiety. It might be anger and sadness, but alcohol is a a, a quick, An easy and legal way to change how you feel. And so you really do need to pay attention to that emotional component of it. So, you know, I drank in college and it was always really connected to social situations. And then I moved to New York City and I was drinking there as well. And what really was so frustrating for me is that I just never felt like I knew what my night was going to be like. Sometimes I would go out and I'd have a couple drinks and it wouldn't be a big deal. And sometimes I would go out and it, next thing I know, it would be three in the morning. And it was that inconsistency that was so frustrating for me, not to mention the next day consequences that I was having. And so I was constantly trying to figure out ways how can I change this? I knew that I didn't understand why my drinking looked the way that it did. And I knew that I often didn't like the results. And so I embarked on so many different attempts to try to change it and try to um, get different results for myself. But the problem and why I got stuck was because I was so fixated on either saying yes to a drink or no to a drink. Oh. All my attention was on the action, right? Am I drinking or am I not drinking? How much am I drinking? And it took me a while to figure out that that was actually the problem focusing all of my energy on the action and not understanding why I was taking the action, not understanding what was behind the decision to drink. That was what really shifted and changed everything for me. Because as soon as I moved my energy and attention from, did I drink? Did I not drink? Did I drink too much? As soon as I moved it away from that saying yes or no to a drink and started to understand Why I was saying yes or why I was saying no. What was the pull? How was I feeling in situations? And then, of course, I'm sure all your podcast listeners know about this our feelings don't just come out of the ether, right? They don't just appear. (laughs) What are the thoughts? What was I thinking? And that gave me a whole new way to really understand the habit. And once I understood it in that framework, it was. It was like a revelation for me because I could see, oh, my over-drinking looks a lot like my overeating, And all of this is so connected to what I have unconsciously taught myself about how to cope with certain negative emotions that I didn't want to deal with. And so it really took a lot of the shame and stigma away from me because all of a sudden I had a framework to understand why I taught my brain this habit which I taught it unconsciously, and how to go about teaching something different to myself.
1: What were some of the main thoughts that were, um, you know, what I call poisonous to you? What were the ones that kept coming up that you started to see like with flashing lights?
0: (laughs) That's such a good question. I will tell you that one of them was, I can't be normal in a social situation without a drink. Mm. So that I had practiced from 17 onwards. Right When I was in social situations, there was a glass in my hand and that glass was not filled with seltzer. <laughs> it was, It had alcohol in it. And so I had created a lot of evidence for myself that if I was going to be quote unquote normal in a social situation, and if I was going to feel confident, I needed to have a drink. So that was something immediately that I realized, oh, if I'm going to change this habit, I'm going to have to learn New and different ways to feel confident and to deal with my insecurity and to deal with my anxiety and awkwardness. So that was a big one. I think I also recognized once I started doing this work how often I used a drink as a reward. Ah. As like, oh, I made it through today. I made it through this week. I made it through that big work project. It became my way of rewarding myself. I wasn't used to or couldn't even fathom the idea that, that I could reward myself. It had so been connected to you need to have an intense concentrated reward that will give you dopamine. And that was a big thing. So whenever I had a quote-unquote long day or a hard day, that then was a reason to go out and have a couple drinks. And so those two things were really, were really big for me to, to, to understand I, I also had, I realized, uh, an attachment to this thought, screw it, right? Mm. Like, it doesn't matter. I've already had one, so I might as well just, you know, have as many as I want. And this comes up all the time for people around all sorts of habits. Oh, right? yeah, like, this sounds so much like food. It oh, is. it's so yeah, it's, much It's so much like food, right? Like how many times have people been quote unquote good and following a diet and eating clean or eating healthy and then they have a slice of pizza and it's like, oh, screw it. And so really understanding how those were the thoughts I needed to pay attention to. I needed to pay attention to not only how they made me feel, but how they were connected to the decision to drink. My attention before had only been on, am I saying yes or am I saying no? And so I hadn't understood any of what was creating my desire and how I had learned to mistakenly cover up and try to cope with negative emotions.
1: Exactly.
0: And what was your drink of choice? Oh, my drink of choice was a gin and tonic. Uh, Yeah, that that was what I would really have sworn up and down was my absolute favorite drink. And it's interesting because I talk a lot with people about the idea that it is possible to change and actually lose your desire to drink. And if someone had told that to me, you know, when I was, I don't know, 27 years old, and they said, you know what, I know you love gin and tonics, Rachel, but it's possible not to desire them, I would have thought that they were crazy. It just (laughs) didn't make any sense. But that is really something that I have learned. And it's so important to changing the habit because if your desire stays the same and you're just saying no over and over, you're just using willpower to resist that desire. One, it's exhausting, right? We only have so much of a kind of mental reserve of willpower. And two, you just will always feel like you're missing out you always feel like you're kind of at war with yourself. And so if you don't change that desire piece, you really can can get stuck feeling like, all right, well, I feel physically better, but I'm suffering. And that's not sustainable. So I had to really understand what was it that I was really desiring? And what I was really desiring was well beyond the gin and the tonic and the line. It was the feeling. It was quieting of all that chatter, that internal nagging self-critic who always told me I didn't fit in, I wasn't good enough, I wasn't measuring up. It was relief from feeling negative emotions that I didn't want to feel. And when I understood that, I could see that, yeah, the taste was not as as, uh, important to my life as I believed
1: that it really was. It's so funny. I'm having this flashback on, you know, how gross alcohol tastes when you first try it. And it's like the first time you try a cigarette too. It's disgusting. It feels like you're you're just taking, well, you are just taking poison into your body. So, do you remember the first thought you started to think on purpose that helped you manage your urge or cope in some of these difficult situations?
0: Uh, yeah, I think that it was some It was some kind of semblance of the urge doesn't have authority over me. Because for so long, I felt like, and I had created the habit of, if you feel desire, you act on it. And listen, I did that with much more than alcohol in my life. I did that with food. I did that with things, right? Wanting to buy something like, oh, I want that. So I should go buy it. I want to eat that. So I should consume it. So I was very used to thinking that an urge was something that had to be obeyed. I didn't understand, number one, that the more I said yes to an urge, the more entrenched, the more ingrained I made that habit. And I also didn't understand that the urge existed for a reason. The urge was there because our brain is built to find rewards in our environment And so the brain thinks that it's being helpful. It thinks that it's helpful by going after these rewards, but just because you feel that urge or that desire or the craving doesn't mean you have to fulfill it. I didn't understand that for the longest time and I just thought, well, if I'm not answering an urge, I'll feel miserable. (laughs) But all the while, I wasn't practicing not answering an urge, I didn't actually understand what did it feel like in my body, what was actually so terrible. About saying no, and so that was the that was the kind of first the first thought that I worked with that I think I might have authority over these urges as opposed to urges running my life.
1: It's so funny because it's really it does come up in so many parts of our lives. Um, it's ultimate freedom to have that metacognitive ability to look at your thoughts, to watch your thoughts, and to decide what you want to do. Instead of just saying, oh, there's a thought in my head, I worked hard, I best do it, because that's freedom, to do whatever I want. Well, really, doing whatever you want with a pause and watching from outside is the ultimate freedom. Creating the results that you want on purpose is really the ultimate. I think, you know, for me, the, the ability to
0: understand that I was not my thoughts, that there was my thinking, all the thoughts that I had about myself, and for a very long time, they were very judgmental, very negative, very critical, only accepted perfection, never allowed for any kind of failure, any kind of mistake, and understanding that that was thinking, that, that was thoughts in my brain that I had practiced over and over again, but that was not who I was. And that I think is a really challenging concept to oh, yeah. wrap, your, wrap your head around. But it really, for me, what I think brought it home was the idea of if there is a part of me that can observe my thinking, can observe that ticker tape that's running through my mind, all those thoughts I have about myself, if I can both observe it and I can think it, then there must be a separation. Because if I was just my thoughts, I want it, I need it, I can't stand feeling this way, then there'd be no possibility to change them. And that's why I think this idea of really learning the skill of not only how to build awareness about your thinking, so you can understand how your thoughts create your feelings and your feelings drive your actions and give you results in life, not only create that awareness, but also start to see you can shift it. And the reason that you can is because you have a human brain, you have a prefrontal cortex that can Look and observe and challenge and question your thoughts. You know, one of the the things that I say to my clients all the time who say, well, that's just the way I think. I don't know how I'm supposed to change this. And I point out to them that they do know how to challenge thinking because they do it all the time with other people's thoughts. (laughs) All the time people come to them, their family, their friends, their loved ones will come to them and say, I'm never going to find a partner. Or, I really think my boss hates me. Or, I'm never gonna get out of this debt. And we don't just accept it. We don't just say, yeah, I think you're probably right. (laughs) We show them a different perspective. We offer them a different interpretation. We show them some potential for possibility. So we all have this skill. We all know how to challenge other people's thinking. No one's just ever shown us that we can challenge our own thoughts. We can challenge our own interpretations of ourselves, other people, what's happening around us. So just knowing
1: you already have that skill, you just need to redirect it towards yourself. Oh yeah, that is so good. So if you could really nail it down to just a few key things for women in the middle to think about, if they are considering that they want to take a break, what would they be?
0: I think first to understand what do you think you will feel either at the end of the day or in social situations, wherever that habit comes up for you the most, what do you think you will be feeling? So can you name those emotions? That is a place where a lot of people, when they think about changing the habit, they're very fixated on on what are the negative results that I'm getting. Let me just remind myself, I hate how I feel groggy in the morning. Or I hate how my sleep is disturbed. Maybe that will, that's where I should put all my attention. But I want people to really step back and say, if you came home from work and you didn't have that regular glass of wine, what would you feel? What would that emotion be? If you went out with your girlfriend and everybody was drinking and you were having a seltzer, how would you feel? You've got to understand that emotional piece first. What is the emotion that you're telling yourself Either I don't want to deal with, I can't handle, it's too much, if you aren't drinking. So I think that's a really big place to start. And a lot of people skip over that step.
1: Oh, yeah. That'd be so easy to skip over because I would imagine for some, they've never thought about it. They've never labeled it. And then it, it might be a little scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, think about it this way. When
0: you are used to dealing with negative emotions by finding things in your external environment to either cover up or numb how you feel, your brain starts to think incorrectly that a negative emotion is an emergency, right? It's a problem that needs to be solved rather than a normal part of human experience. And so when you start to consider that, what are the negative emotions that you're moving away from? What are the ones that you're trying to avoid? And why is that? What are you telling yourself would happen if you felt anxious at the end of the day and didn't try to cover it up with a drink? If you felt insecure or awkward at the charity event and you didn't try to cover it up with a drink? So that's a really important place for women who are considering taking a break to start. I think it's also really important to understand What are the thoughts that are creating your desire? Again, this is not a place that a lot of us really even believed or know that we can focus, right? So a lot of people, when they think about taking a break, they're like, okay, I'm going to do it seven days or 30 days or whatever it is, they get very fixated on the number of days on the calendar. And here's the thing, you can cross off a number of days and you can, provide evidence for yourself or prove to yourself that you don't have to drink, but it won't reveal any of the habit cycle for you. It won't reveal why you feel that desire in the first place. It won't reveal any of your thinking. And so I really encourage people to go into it with a mindset of, let me figure out why the habit is working the way it is. What are the emotions and the thoughts driving it? rather than sitting down with a calendar and just, you know, crossing days off one after another, because that won't reveal how the habit
1: is working for you. And I can just imagine like gritting your teeth when you're crossing things off. You're just like forcing it versus really understanding what's going on and and having some compassion for yourself too. Do you find that, um, where does the compassion come in with people who are really thinking about making this change?
0: Well, the compassion comes in 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 a number of ways. One is so many women beat themselves up unbelievably harshly because they had more to drink last night than they wanted. So I want you to consider that it works like this. You're already drinking to try to cover up or deal with a negative emotion. And then you wake up the next day and you look at the results that you got And then you start to use those results as evidence or proof that, oh, something is wrong with you. You're weak-willed or you're lacking discipline or something's just not right, right? You're missing an off switch, whatever it is. So, you know, I think of it as kind of layering negative emotion on top of of each other. And that is a recipe for disaster. So it first has to really start with a place of, Are you willing to do this work and not use drinking more than you wanted or drinking when you planned not to, not use it as a way to beat yourself up? Because that's just going to fuel the habit. I think the other place people really need to find compassion is around urges, right? When we want to change a habit, what will happen, and I watch this happen with my clients over and over. Is that they start to hate the urge Mm. they start to think that the urge is the problem one of the exercises that I have people do is actually write a letter to their urge and just to see what's there and it's really fascinating how often those letters are just like I hate you why are you here why are you bothering me why won't you go away and when you engage with your, what is a, just a habit in your brain in this way of hating it and thinking that if it appears something is wrong, what happens is you can't really understand what's creating it because you're so busy judging it. And so that's a really big place for a lot of women to just understand, you know, having an urge or a desire to drink when you've committed to taking a break or you don't want to drink doesn't mean anything has gone wrong. In fact, it's a sign that your brain is working as it
1: should. Your yeah, brain... it's like it's really expected. You yeah. wor- you've been practicing it for so long, so it makes much more sense to expect it, yeah. and welcome it with yeah. um, understanding and curiosity. Mm-hmm. It, it would be weird if it wasn't there because you've been an expert at um, practicing it. Exactly.
0: But, but really shifting to a place of I can be curious, I can even welcome it and accept it. I don't have to kind of beat it off with a baseball bat, right? I don't have to hate it into submission. I think there really is a misconception that if we are going to change something in our, in our lives, that means that we have to kind of, we're changing because we hate something, we're changing because we have all this negative emotion. And so we start to go after go after change and go after our habits with a lot of judgment, a lot of negative emotion. The idea that you can change from a place of acceptance and compassion and openness is, is a big shift for a lot of people. They're not used to thinking about change in that way.
1: Oh my God, it's huge. It's huge. And the other thing that you said that really triggered something in me was this self-judgment. And as soon as we're judging, we're not in the present moment. So Mm -hmm. as soon as you start judging that there must be something wrong with you because that popped into your brain at that moment, you are not in the moment looking at what's going on with compassion, with curiosity, with openness, and knowing that you know exactly what to do when your expected thought pops in. So the self-judgment is always a reminder to me that I am not in the present moment.
0: Yeah, I think this is a really important thing to not just for changing a habit like drinking or overeating, but just to be really aware with yourself like, where does my brain like to hang out? Because what most women will find, most people will find, is that their brain loves to hang out in what I call the negative past, where everything you decided went wrong, all the decisions you made were bad all the things that you wish you could go back and change. So it likes to hang out in the negative past, kind of dwelling and ruminating. Or it really likes to hang out in what I call the negative future. And the negative future is everything that could go wrong. It's (laughs) where we catastrophize. It's where we really worry and fixate on all those what ifs. And even if you can start to build awareness around that, even if you can notice how often you're not in that present moment, your, your brain is off hanging out in the negative past or the negative future and just trying to practice either, just bringing it back. Like what is happening right now? You're so right that as soon as you start judging yourself, as soon as you start beating
1: yourself up, you are not in that present moment any longer. Bam. <laughs> On that note, I wonder if you could just share how people can find your podcast and learn more about working with you. Sure. So if
0: you're interested, you can just go to rachelhart.com. That's H-A-R-T. You can find links to my podcast there. And I actually have a free five-day challenge. It's called the five-day reset, which really helps you take a different kind of break. So instead of just crossing five days off the calendar, it's really using every day to go into these tools and to start to understand hey, how do I respond to my urges? What are my thoughts that create desire? How have I outsourced fun to a Mm -hmm. drink? And maybe I can learn how to have fun in other ways. So it really is a a totally different way to think about your relationship with the habit of drinking.
1: Oh, outsourcing fun. That is, I love that. (laughs) So I'm going to, of course, put all these links in the show notes. Rachel, thank you so much for sharing your story with Women in the Middle. One thing we know for sure, especially after your story, is that we are not alone. We have so much to learn from each other, and your story and your business are so inspiring. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you like what you've heard, just head over to the Women in the Middle podcast on iTunes. I would love it if you would leave me a review. Check out the show notes too for more information and links at www.susierosenstein.com. While you're on my website, if you haven't done so yet, make sure to grab your copy of my free ebook, 10 Simple Ways to Bust Out of Your Midlife Funk. This will totally help you get going. Let's do this, ladies. Remember, even your drinking starts with your thinking. Thanks so much for listening.